Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Friday, August 20th, 2001. This episode of Fine Tuning will actually be posted on Tuesday, August 24th, which is the 27th anniversary of an event that changed the world of entertainment. It was on the 24th of August, 1994, when it was revealed that Jeffrey Katzenberg would be stepping down as the chairman of the Walt Disney Company. And stepping down is such a kind way of putting that, right? Michael basically pushed him, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, you can even see this in what the company was producing. You know, I'm still toiling away on this runaway brain uh, story. But if you watch the film, when he's out, when Mickey is outside Frank and Ollie's place... Yep. It's the same scene with Zazu. Mm -hmm. You will see a small pink slip, Jim, and the initials JK. No, <laughs> no, really? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh my God. I I had no idea. I do about yep. Zazu. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> this was all sort of put in motion because Jeffrey, after Frank Wells was killed in that tragic helicopter accident in April of '94, Jeffrey wanted Frank's job, and he, he felt he'd earned it. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of stories about how pushy he was. The The way it was always explained to me is that Michael has quadruple bypass July 17th of that year. And his doctors are like, okay, so in order to recover this, you have to have as little stress as possible. And this is when Jeffrey is calling him, to, how are you doing? And hey, can we talk about that Frank thing? And which I guess infuriates Michael's wife, Jane. She was a big part of Jeffrey sort of getting pushed out. There's a lot of people that Jeffrey annoyed over the course of his career, and one of them is Robin Williams, and we will talk at length about that on the, the second half of today's show. But first, the news, and news portion of today's fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, last show, we talked about how Hotel Transylvania Transformania, Sony Pictures Animation had pulled it off of its October 1st release date, and it looked likely that it was going to wind up at Netflix, which made sense, given the Wish Dragon from Sony Pictures Animation ended up over there, Mitchell's versus the Machines, which you and I both love, and Vivo. So yep. were you surprised to see the stories in the trade about this, the Amazon deal, which I guess hasn't officially closed yet? Yeah, I was surprised. And, you know, I was theorizing with you earlier that the Amazon thing might have been in part because Adam Sandler isn't a part of this Hotel Transylvania. Have we talked about this yet? That Adam Sandler and Kevin James are both I not back? I think we, we have mentioned this. But, you know, Adam Sandler has this huge deal with Netflix. Obviously, he makes, uh, I think, a few movies a year this for Netflix. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think that that would have fit a lot better. And I, I wonder why that it didn't go to Netflix. I don't know. It feels like that would have been like a nice gesture after releasing all these weirdos, mm. you know, one-off movies. Like, have the franchise and, you know, build mm. it into your Halloween programming. Because, you know, you, you and I have seen... Over the years, each year, mm. the Halloween programming on the streaming service um, yeah. uh, become really, really important. And it feels like there's more pressure put on it each year. So I would I feel like that would be a kind of cornerstone for whoever gets the movie. Because the other thing is that we don't know what the release date is going to be now. Right. Like it was supposed to be August, October 1st. Will it still be October 1st? We do not know. 
this is true. We've got the Amazon Prime tag. We, we even have supposedly a dollar amount, $100 million, which the fourth and final film of a franchise, and don't get me wrong, I mean, you, know, you and I both know how much the Hotel Transylvania films have made to date. Likewise, the popularity of the Hotel Transylvania series that's been running over on Disney Channel. We also talked on the, the last show about Emma Stone cutting that deal for Cruella 2. Did you see what Matt Baloney, who used to be the editor of The Hollywood Reporter and has recently launched a newsletter, What I've Been Hearing, which has broken quite a few stories just over the last couple of weeks. But did you see what he said about the Emma Stone deal? Yeah, it sounded like she was taken care of for the first film and is making even more money. Uh, he says eight-figure payment for Cruella, too, but I've heard it might be even higher than that. He actually tweeted this part of it out. The effect of Emma Stone reportedly received an eight-figure make-good payment for the first Cruella's hybrid release, as in out in theaters, but also available through Disney's premium access feature over at Disney+. Plus. So the theory is that, especially given what Chapek said during the quarterly earnings call last week, where it's like all the stars are okay with what we're doing in regard to how we're handling films during the pandemic. And the fact that news of this deal bubbled up after that call, kind of interesting. Well, it sort of connects to our feature, Jim, because, you know, some people are very angry and then they get paid and come back for a direct-to-video sequel <laughs> years later. So, you know, just to tease very, what we'll be talking about later true, on. Very true. It's, it's speaking of, of well, uh, it's not direct-to-video. It does start as a digital release on September 21st, but you pointed out the Night of the Animated Dead, which is coming from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. And how did you describe the trailer, Drew? Well, I mean, it is just shockingly inept. It looks like someone created it on Microsoft Paint mm. or something. I mean, it's really bad. And this is what happens, Jim, mm. when you don't properly copyright your movie. And... Night of the Living Dead has been in the public domain for many years now. Oh. You know, there was all sorts of shady stuff. Yeah. You know, and gangsters. And, all, you know, you've all heard the story about why that, that copyright lapsed. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. this is what happens, Jim. It looks terrible. The original George Romero film from October of 68 doesn't look all that great either. Could this be a style choice? No, because I will say the first one has grit. It has texture. Mm. It has a sense of reality and if you have picked up the great criterion blu-ray that they put out a couple years ago there is a lot to appreciate about that cinematography and a lot that that cinematography sort of established going forward and and the way that these zombies are presented and everything else and this movie just looks crummy <laughs> i gotta say oh okay i love the spirit of defense and then the right hook at the end okay well the digital on september 21st and then there will be a blu-ray combo pack and a dvd of night of the animated dead uh becoming available october 15th i'll put it in your halloween basket I'll, jim i'll put it in your halloween uh, basket. again i have i have issues with zombies which, again, my daughter loves to exploit. On the other hand, something that I thought has looked great since they put the title sequence out and they've recently put out a great introductory scene, but The Ghost of Molly McGee, which we now have at a launch date, it debuts on the Disney Channel on October 1st, so please note that. On the other hand, we have come to the end of yet another season of Rick and Morty. 
But this time around, they're going to go with an hour-long finale for Season 5, and that's on September 5th. You, of course, sent along info about the fourth and final Adventure Time Distance Land special. Lena sees a year or so back uh, for HBO Max. Yeah. Uh, They've all been fun. So uh, this one, which is titled Wizard City, drops on September 2nd, and it is the backstory of Princess Bubblegum's loyal assistant, Peppermint Butler, who is described in the press materials as a mild manner occultist. I have no idea what that means, Drew. But well, I will watch this. Yeah. But what what did you make of the other Adventure Time news this week? They will just not let Adventure Time mm. die, will they, Jim? <laughs> I mean, the, there were those of us who loved the show. And so if it, it continues on in, in various forms, and, and this is a new form, right? Uh, Fiona and Cake? Yeah, Adventure Time, Fiona and mm. Cake. Well, that's the working title. I guess we don't know the actual mm-hmm. title okay. yet. But, I mean, this is the kind of gender-swapped. Mm-hmm species swapped versions of uh finn and Mm -hmm. jake so the bullet point for this is fiona and cake with the help of the former ice king simon petrakov embark on a multiverse hopping adventure which oh i have to ask did you get to see this week's what if from marvel studios oh yeah i've seen the first three so i've seen next next week's too which is really fun but i thought this week's was the best of the bunch so far it's what a special, what a special episode. I love the endless left turns. I mean, Thanos as a hero. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. <laughs> but also a kind of an insistent hero, you know, to the effect of, yeah. isn't that genocide? Well, no, no, it's planning. They even brought back Seth Green to do the voice of Howard the Duck. There was so right. much fun. Yeah, this, these shows have been really exciting. Mm-hmm. And I saw Shang-Chi this week, too, which is just wonderful. I so, saw that. Yeah. I also saw yeah. you got hammered on for saying nice things about the action scenes of this movie, right? Or Yeah. Yeah. I'm a sh- apparently a Disney shill, Jim. <laughs> so after this, I'm going to hop in my private jet that was paid for by Bob Chapin. There we and, go. You know, there. head on down to Castaway K and, you know, that, that, that'll be my weekend. Okay. So, yeah. Well. All right. Hope you and Nova enjoy your time on the beach. But again, back to Shang Chi. It it delivers the goods, or oh yeah, I actually I've seen it twice now, Jim, really? because uh, no. I was somebody's guest at mm-hmm. the premiere, so okay. I had to bring my wife, you know, a couple of days later mm-hmm. to watch it. And you know, it was one of those things where I was just really excited to watch it again. I think it's just wonderful. The action cinematography is really amazing. This guy Brad Allen, who recently passed away, he was only forty eight, oh. um, but he's done some amazing things. Did all the choreography and. Mm-hmm the second unit direction. And it's just a really fun, you know, it feels like black Panther in the sense that it's kind of opening up the Mm -hmm. world, both in terms of representation and a kind of new mythological corner Mm -hmm. of the Marvel universe. That's very indebted to Hayao Miyazaki, our favorite. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's just, it's a wonderful film. And I I can't wait for you and Aaron to talk about it on uh, Marvel us Disney. The weird thing is that they were doing, screenings in IMAX theaters all over the country. That's when you know they have something mm-hmm. good when they're showing it that mm-hmm. early to people, mm-hmm. right? Just to slide back to Adventure Time, which again, the, we're getting a multiverse kind of a show here, but we don't have a date on when this is going to show up on HBO Max. We know 10 episodes, half hour long. Got to assume 2022, 2023, right? Or 
Yeah, that's what my assumption okay. was. Whenever we'll get that unicorn show from Genby <laughs> that we are still promised. Still waiting on that there one. There you go. Okay. On the other hand, we, we know exactly when we're getting uh, Star Wars Visions. That's those nine anime-inspired short films. Uh, those are going to be showing up on September 22nd. And you were mentioning that you were really impressed by that trailer. Yeah, weren't you? I was, I was. I, I love the fact that they do seem to bounce around the style, especially coming on the heels of how well season one of Bad Batch finished. It's just sort of like, I love the fact that they're doing what they're doing with the franchise and, and using animation as a way to sort of stretch the canvas. Uh, just before we started recording tonight, you got the news about the 50th fireworks show for yes. Walt Disney World. What is the name? Well, they spun the Lynn Testa naming convention wheel and they landed on Disney Enchantment, I think, or Enchanted. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting and why I am bringing this up now is that it's sort of a tribute to animated movies, which is weird because I mm -hmm. think that one at Disney Studios is also a tribute to animated movies. But all the movies that they shouted out, with the mm -hmm. exception of Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. which, you know, that I think is just because of it's the celebrating the, the 70th anniversary this year. But, oh, okay. you know, it's all Onward, Soul, Wreck-It Ralph, Frozen, obviously, Moana, obviously, Onward. It's just, uh, it's all recent animated movies. So how better to celebrate the 50th anniversary of one of the most amazing technical and entertainment accomplishments on earth than by just running clips of a bunch of recent movies you've already watched a thousand <sighs> times on Disney Plus. Don't hold back, Drew. Tell us how you feel. Well, you know, it's it's sort of interesting that the, these firework shows have kind of been homogenized into mm -hmm. one thing, just like the parks have kind of been homogenized into mm -hmm. one thing down there. Because there's no real distinction between them. I mean, we know that the Illuminations replacement is going to have clips from mm. things. I mean, I remember you telling me that years ago that they were going mm. to sort of cue off of the country movies that are set in the countries that are represented. And it's the notion that people go to Walt Disney world because of the characters. And it, these are characters that Disney has and universal doesn't have and SeaWorld doesn't have. Speaking of which though, did you see just this week, they did the construction walkthrough for the Florida media for the, the expansion of the Legoland Resort in Florida for the Peppa Pig Park. I did. I saw a lot of middle-aged men looking very <laughs> excited to interact with a 18-year-old college kid dressed as Peppa Pig, and I thought, please don't let that be me one day, Jim. That's oh, what I said. Oh, you didn't enjoy everyone in their bright pink construction helmet and their bright pink safety vest? I thought, Jim, maybe the maybe the quarantine has just changed my priorities a little bit, but I just thought. Good Lord. Get out of that dirt pit and leave that pig alone. <laughs> and there's our first official PG piece of merch. <laughs> we need that in a t-shirt today. All right. <laughs> Get out of that pit and leave that pig alone. All right. Uh, speaking of merch, though, that just this week I was shopping in Target and loitering in the toy aisle and came across... The uh, Monsters at Work playsets, which they have obviously already done, merch based on Disney Plus series. I mean, it, it, Baby Yoda comes immediately to mind. But this, to me, seemed to be the first of the animated stuff. And you were saying this is actually kind of controversial, right? Well, yeah, I know that people at Disney Television Animation, now Disney branded television, are a little upset because. 
you know, Jim, you and I re- recall the joy mm. of finally seeing DuckTales toys in Target, you know, yes. years into their run. Yes. The, you know, consumer products face of Gravity Falls was incredibly limited. And then mm. they put out a book that becomes like the highest selling book in the history of Disney publishing. Mm. And there's just sort of a weird, you know, there's just so much emphasis on Disney Plus that it feels like. Some of the other business units kind of aren't getting the attention that they deserve. And I I completely sympathize. I think that, you know, the fact that there was never any Star versus the Forces of Evil merchandise ever Mm. is crazy. I agree. Obviously, no wander over yonder. And to me, it's like a Mm. chicken or the egg thing where these shows don't last as long as maybe you think they would or Mm. maybe are canceled prematurely in the case of wander over yonder. Mm. And is it because there weren't things in the marketplace that reinforced and re you know ignited enthusiasm for these properties so yeah i don't know hmm it's a, it's an interesting point this is disney which typically doesn't miss a trick i mean for example again wandering through target and notice that you know they're sitting on a shelf was a two movie collection that had the 1992 animated version of aladdin but also they paired it with the 2019 live action, you know, Aladdin, where uh, Will Smith played the genie. And weren't you imagining that they did something similar with Alice in Wonderland at one point? Or? Yeah, this is like a new initiative in consumer products fairly mm-hmm. recently for the past like five years where, you know, they, they usually would let the live action thing kind of play out on its own and support that independently. But then they introduced this thing around the time of Alice through the looking glass, which they mm-hmm. called the Uber Alice. Jim, which is the, the most Disney thing I've ever heard in my life. Uber Alice. The Uber Alice, where you would promote both mm-hmm. simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And that enthusiasm for one product would, you know, inform enthusiasm for the new product. So that's what this is the Uber Aladdin we are seeing, Jim. I yes. did not know that. But again, speaking of Aladdin, when we get to the second half of today's show, we will talk about. Robin Williams' issues with Jeffrey Katzenberg when it came to this animated feature. Before we get to talking about Jeffrey and Robin, a couple of quick things to wrap up here. We just got word that TMS Entertainment, they're announcing the launch of a dedicated Lupin the Third channel. Now, they're partnering with the leading free television streaming service, Pluto Television. Leading? Okay, I'm sorry. They're going to be, the Lupin Channel will be showing the most popular modern films as well as the classic series titles 24-7. If you're looking to chase that down, folks, that's Pluto Television Channel 842. Have we heard anything yet about the Lupin the Third CG movie? Yeah, it's actually on, it's on Blu-ray right now. Is it really? Yeah, G-Kid's put it out yeah it's it's wonderful it's a wonderful disc and they actually recently also put out a 4k restoration of uh castle of cagliostro so if you want to get that miyazaki and lupin hit Mm -hmm. check that out also i wanted to mention in the same breath that Mm -hmm. uh, g kids is putting out a deluxe box set of uh, neon genesis evangelion i think it's the most complete set uh that has come out so far Pre-orders are up right now on the G Kids website, although the price is a little tricky, Jim. It's a uh, clocking it at a cool two seventy-five. Yeah, but how um, many how many discs is that? Well, it's you know it's one of those that 
includes a lot of peripheral stuff that that you or I would mm. not enjoy, and our our spouses would probably uh, leave us over like a paperweight and all this kind of like there's like a book or something. But they have promised that on August 30th, so mm. not too long after this episode airs, they're going to be announcing subsequent versions of the box set that maybe aren't as deluxe mm-hmm. that you can purchase for what I'm guessing is going to be a more standardized price point. This one has artboards, 156 page book, mm-hmm. uh, a paper, resin paperweight and a nerve ID card with lanyard gym. So you can pretend to be a feisty little Gundam fighter yourself. But uh, yeah, the pre-orders are a limited time. So we'll see. We'll follow up next week, I guess, and see where that, where we're at with this, uh, this new edition of neon Genesis Evangelion. Cause oh. I know the new movie came out too, right on Amazon. It did. It did. Yeah. Uh, oh, very cool. Okay, I wanted to give credit to the folks over at the G- at GHZ uh, podcast who recently had Pat Casey on, and he's the co-writer of Sonic the Hedgehog uh, movie. In fact, he's also working on the sequel now. But he also got called in by the folks at Warner's when they were getting the Tom and Jerry movie ready to go. And Pat had this wonderful story, which the folks over at Cartoon Brew shared earlier this week. But basically, they talked about how Pat gets called in to have a meeting with the producers of the Tom and Jerry movie. And they said, how do you make a Tom and Jerry movie? So Pat goes, well, you know, the main thing is that this is Tom and Jerry. They have to be the main characters that that someone asked for the movie about. It has to be... It's about a cat and a mouse who are trying to kill each other. You can have some human characters in it, and they can have this stuff going on, but they cannot be the protagonists. And, and the producers, uh, the waters are like, well, get the hell out. That's not what they wanted to hear. And it's just sort of like, you hear that, and then you, you look at the movie, and it's kind of the Kevin Smith giant spider story. Right. You remember that about the Superman movie he was going to make with Nicolas Cage, wasn't it, and Tim Burton? Yeah, I think it was... Uh. Peter Gruber, right, there, was the one insisting that the there we go. was there. There we go. I've got, and I bring that up because just the other night I was watching Wild Wild West with Will Smith. And it's like, oh, yeah, the giant mechanical spider that he couldn't get into Superman, but he, he shoehorned into the Wild Wild West. So Wait, what, Jim, wait a second. We got to investigate this for a minute. You were just casually watching Wild Wild West. Nobody accidentally watches Wild Wild West. You need to, you need to elaborate on how this came to be. Here's the thing. All right. I have a copy of the original script for Wild Wild West. The original casting for this movie was George Clooney as James West. Then it was Kevin Spacey as Artemis Gordon. And then the truly killer idea was, you know, the Ulysses S. Grant character in the film? Yes. They were going to bring back the guy who played James West in the original series. Oh, wow. Every so often you hear about these things, like, for example, I guess it was Tim Burton who wanted in his Batman movie, the one with Michael Keaton, he wanted Adam West to play Bruce Wayne's dad in the crime alley scene. Oh, wow. You know, just the notion of a little nod, a little nod to the, you know, that the, what had come before, you know, it's something, oh, no, no, you know, we don't want to do that. That would make this campy. I get it. It was very conventional casting with George Clooney and Kevin Spacey. And I love those could have beens. But again, with the Wild Wild West thing, it was the notion of if we have Will Smith, this will open worldwide, whereas George Clooney and Kevin Spacey will do okay. And we know what rat hole that went down. Right. 
I will say Wild Wild West was also re-edited after the fact. Do you remember after 9-11 where any kind of violent stuff was taken out? So they took no. out, there were, I guess, a lot of shootouts and stuff that they just removed completely from the movie after after mm. 9-11. So, wow. you know, I say if you if you take out gunfights, you let the terrorists mm. win. But, you know, whatever. It's so interesting because we're about to start, obviously, talk, start talking about a Ron Clements, John Musker movie. And, and isn't that exactly what happened also with Treasure Planet? Yeah. Post 9-11, they, they, they went in and edited out a lot of the the gunplay and the and just sort of like, they're pirates. They got to stab somebody. It's always strange to hear, you know, things like that. But I guess we, we should mention that you wanted to talk about Aladdin because, of course, what's been in the news this week, but Disney Genie, which has put the, the genie from Aladdin front and center. And have you seen all of the fan-made artwork in regard to, to Disney Genie where they've swapped out, what, Scrooge McDuck? And the one I particularly enjoyed was the Prince John system, where you pay all this money and, and you get less than you got before. So Right. Yeah, a lot of Photoshop has been burning up this week, putting, putting those together. But, I mean, as someone... someone uh, talked about this on Twitter Mm -hmm. and I had to kind of come in and swoop in with a very abbreviated version of this story. Mm -hmm. So I thought we could elaborate certainly today and we could talk about the friction between Disney and Robin Williams in regards to the genie character and the promotion of Aladdin. I have a copy of the, I think it's a 30 page scenario that Howard Ashman wrote for his take where it's, you know, the, the really a, a Bob Hope and Crosby movie. And I also have the the screenplay that Ron Clements and John Musker wrote for Aladdin. This may even be the version after Terry uh, Ruscio and Ted Elliott came in and did the polish. But when they get to the genie in the script, it literally says that he is a Robin Williams-like character that can change into anything. So, you know, right from the get-go, that was the plan. They needed Robin Williams to make this movie work. Though I've been told that the fallback position that if Robin had said no, they were talking about Steve Martin and Martin Short. And they asked Eric Goldberg to do a piece of test animation and he found there's a lovely chunk out of uh, Robin's uh, debut stand-up album, Reality, What a Concept, where I'd like to talk to you about schizophrenia. No, he doesn't. Shut up. This this great piece of material. Eric animated that as the genie growing two heads and arguing with himself. And they actually met with Williams on the set of Hook. Didn't they they, they go over there and basically make the pitch to him there? He was probably just happy to not be shooting Hook. Maybe a little misplaced enthusiasm there. Could I, you know, well, I mean, the poor man spent a lot of time in a a flying truss. Yes, that's true. So, all right. Well, yes, I mean, Williams was initially enthusiastic, but he had conditions, right? He would agree to do this film, but he had also agreed at this point to do toys for for Barry Levinson, right? Yeah, and and you brought up the fact, at this point, he had Mm. a relationship with Disney. He was one of the kind of actors who had maybe overshot their prime a little bit, and Disney Mm. was was kind of getting him on the cheap for Mm -hmm. interesting projects that would kind of build him back up, right? Yeah, so uh, June of 89, we had Dead Poet Society. Likewise, the, the Back to Neverland film with him and Walter Cronkite is 
honestly one of my favorite parts of you know the original opening version of Disney MGM. You know, I, I would actually yeah. say that was more entertaining than the great movie ride. Oh boy, Barry Levinson back when he used to work with Valerie Curtin when she was his writing partner, they wrote the script for toys. And again, to give you, and in fact, it's been very interesting this past week or so with people making all sorts of Vietnam comparisons to what's going on in Afghanistan. But that was what initially influenced Valerie and Barry to, to write toys. What was going on with the military industrial complex? And he thought this was, you know, a perfect target for satire. But that script, I mean, I, I remember when I was running a theater in 78, you know, when I was in college and reading in the trades about Barry Levinson and Valerie Curtin's toys and how everyone's excited about this script and they're, they're trying to cast it and get it, you know, set up a studio. And it just, it kept falling apart because it was so stylized. And finally, after Gaboni Vietnam, Williams was a big enough star again. It's like, I got a name. I got and some more to the point. I've got somebody who's associated with comedy that I can get toys made. And so it was set up at Fox, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, it was produced by Levinson's mm. production company, which is called Baltimore Pictures. Surprise, surprise. But yep. yeah, it was set up at Fox. Yeah. And it, it, it was just one of these things where Robin was, I guess, where it's like, okay, I will do this as my side project. But this is my primary focus. And didn't he lay down terms about marketing and stuff like that out, out ahead of this as well? Or Yeah, well, I mean, it looked, it, I think it was, it was mostly because the two movies were coming out so close mm -hmm. together, right? He didn't want his, his name or likeness associated with any of the advertising or marketing materials. And he, I think he did, yeah. right? He didn't, he didn't do any press either, right? No. And I've got a copy of the first making of book and it, it's fascinating how they don't identify Robin in the book. They refer to him as the gentleman who's the voice of the, the genie and, you know, wonderful comic talent, but, you know, don't say his name, which I thought was really strange, but they laid down terms to the effect of, you know, when it came time to make the movie posters and that sort of thing, that, that Robin could only be featured in like a quarter of the poster. Which, you know, again, if you remember the original Aladdin poster with the giant genie sort of looming over the rest of the cast, and isn't he holding the, the city of Agrabah in his hands with the, the rest of the cast sort of looming yeah. around? Well, that, that was the one sheet. The teaser poster, which is what I always remember and I think was way cooler, mm -hmm. was just his the hands gripping the lamp. Do you remember that? There you that? go. There you go. That yeah. was really cool. And that had no genie in it. No, no, ab absolutely not. But Katzenberg honored the language of the deal to the effect of, well, you know, you, you said he could only be a, in a quarter of the poster. And it's like, well, he's the biggest thing in the poster, but he's only in a quarter of the poster. And Right. But then, of course, there were those bus shelter versions of the poster where it was the genie's image as if he was squished between the two pieces of glass. But uh, Williams was absolutely furious. You know, he felt that Disney did not honor what they agreed to. And when Aladdin came out in November of 1992, it's a smash hit. Beauty and the Beast had come out the year previous and had broken all sorts of records and, you know, the first animated film ever to be nominated for a Best Picture. And now here comes Aladdin and it's smashing all of Beauty and the Beast records. And and everyone's talking up that this is the greatest Robin Williams performance, in, you know, ever, which also kind of offended him. 
because it's my voice, not... And, oh, I, I guess also we should talk about how Robin almost quit the film very early on. This is the story that Eric Goldberg tells. It's right after March of, of 1991, which is when we sadly lost uh, Howard Ashman. And here's Alan Menken, who's you know writing her on the recording of the score for the film. And he's decided that to honor his late partner, that the score for Aladdin is going to be perfect. And so here comes Robin Williams in to, to sing Friend Like Me. And Alan is having him record and re-record and re-record because he gets a word wrong or, or that sort of thing. And Robin is starting to get really frustrated because he's being forced to technically sing this song as opposed to do a performance. And finally, it's Eric Goldberg who's there who takes Robin aside and is actually done some drawings. Like, okay, so this is when you're Arnold Schwarzenegger and this is when you're, you're Groucho and this is different characters are playing the number and gives him sort of the rocks in the river to hit. So if you enjoy the original version of Friend Like Me in the film, the, the way you sing it, you don't necessarily owe that to Alan Menken, you owe that to Eric Goldberg, or that's the story that Eric tells. So let's talk about what happens when you get a Robin Williams angry. Well, I want to add that one thing that was also annoying him was that he did do press mm -hmm. for toys mm -hmm. and all anybody wanted to talk about was Aladdin, uh, you know? Uh, so that was another thing that was getting under his skin. But anyway, uh -huh. I just wanted to add that quickly before we talk about what happened next. Aladdin, in a weird sort of way, kind of blotted out the sun, at least as far as Toys was concerned. I mean, that you know, Toys was released to theaters December 19th, which was two weeks, three weeks after Aladdin debuted on November 25th of that same year, and underperformed at the box office. Though I was just reading a story that Toys has finally kind of hit its groove. It's been rediscovered thanks to streaming and that sort of thing. And there's a whole new generation of kids who appreciate because, again, it's kind of a ham-handed satire. I mean, I, I love the look of it, but it's not exactly subtle. It has a great cast. has an amazing cast. I, I remember seeing it in theaters, and I, it was just sort of like, this is the film I've been waiting for since 1978. You know, this legendary script that just didn't play. So Toys quickly falls out of theaters, but Aladdin is getting its... Praises sung in all sorts of different directions. So and here comes the 50th Golden Globes, which are held January 23rd, 1993. I want to say Whole New World took home uh, Best Musical number at, at that award ceremony and sort of teed up what was going to happen at, at the Oscars. But nobody had really been honored for a vocal performance up until that point. Right, and still, still haven't, really. Yeah, the Golden Globes had to figure out what to do in regard to, you know, there was no award to give Robin, so they gave him a certificate that notes his a special achievement award. And so Robin comes up on stage and just basically starts riffing about is like, okay, so is this what I turn in later to get the award? And you just get the vibe coming off of him. He is happy and proud that Aladdin is getting the recognition that it is, but he's also frustrated that toys basically fell off the map and people are saying, this is your best performance ever. And it's like, it's not me. It's, it's the animators at Disney, but Disney tries to make good with him. Right. Yeah. So he got paid $75,000 mm -hmm. for the film when his usual fee was $8 million. Oh, this is about on par with how much I get paid Jim for my good uh, tweets about <laughs> Shang-Chi. <laughs> and, you know, he said that 
he didn't want to sell stuff. That was another big thing. He didn't mm. want to be in the Burger King commercials or whatever. Yeah. And Disney was initially pretty bullish. And then he, they said he agreed to the deal. And then when the movie turned out to be a big hit, mm-hmm. he didn't like the deal he made. Mm. So the studio as a kind of mea culpa, Mm -hmm. sent him a Pablo Picasso painting estimated at the time to be worth about a million dollars, which he said clashed with his home decor. (laughs) And Eric Idle, who is Williams's friend, suggested that Williams go on live television and burn it as a protest. Oh, wow. So it didn't exactly smooth things over the way that he maybe wanted that Mm -hmm. to. But, uh... He noted to New York Magazine that when you work for Disney, you realize why the mouse only has four fingers because he can't pick up the check, <laughs> which echoes. I don't know if you remember, but around the same time, Alec Baldwin was called Jeffrey Katzenberg, the uh, eighth dwarf. Um, Do you remember that? Yes. Stingy. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and this gets problematic. Aladdin is this huge hit. It's a merchandising wonder for Disney. But at the same time, you have Robin out there who really wants nothing to do with Disney at this point. And instead of Good Morning uh, Vietnam, it's Good Morning Chicago. It's the proposed sequel to that film. What? Seriously, I've I've got the script of this. It is the Adrian Cronauer character is backstage side, but he's broadcasting out of Chicago just as the 1968 Democratic Convention is about to happen with the riots in the streets and, and that sort of thing. So it's it's that same character but because Williams is on the outs with Disney. This doesn't happen. So it's August of 1994. Michael Eisner basically insists that Jeffrey resign. He leaves and goes off. Isn't it? It's October of that year, right? That, that he and, and Geffen and Spielberg launched DreamWorks, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And is it Roth? Like who's the the next head of of Disney Studios? Uh, it might have been Roth. It wasn't Ovitz yet. Okay. There were a lot of people around then, but yeah, I, I don't remember who exactly filled in for him because at the for a while didn't didn't wasn't there just nobody there that yeah, just, Well, I yeah. mean, again, you know, again, it was it was a strange time. Ovitz came in in the middle of this, and that was a strange what fifteen months or thereabouts. <laughs> But eventually, the new head of Disney Studios reaches out to Williams. He basically public apologizes, right? Yeah. We had a deal with Mr. Williams, and we did not honor that deal. And on behalf of Disney, we apologize. And that's actually how we get Robin doing the voice of the genie again for King of Thieves, which comes out in August of 1996. So 25 years ago this month. A friend of mine had shared with me Dan Castellaneta, the, the, the voice of Homer, who, and, and also the gentleman who did the voice of the genie for the, the Aladdin, the animated series. He had already finished working on the film when Robin agreed to come back and voice the genie again. They put him in a booth with the script that Dan had worked in, and he riffed on the lines and they suddenly found they had better material and but they then had to go back and reboard and in some cases reanimate the footage for that uh Walt Disney television animation production and then as as a make good Disney was kind of like whatever you want to make we'll make it here at the studio and that's when they met Bicentennial Man <laughs> which Bicentennial <laughs> Man and Jack Jim, I, oh, the God. two oh. yeah not 
two of, of Robin's best films. I still remember sitting in a theater where it's Bill Cosby and Robin Williams with a bunch of kids up in a treehouse, and <laughs> they're all sitting around a paint can that someone has farted in, and it's like they're daring each other to open it, and it's like, I'm so glad I came to this temple of entertainment for this moment. Yes. Well, I would want, I, I'm very curious as to when he recorded his dialogue for the timekeeper in all of this. I assume before the poop hit the fan with the Aladdin, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will have to do some poking at that. Yeah, poke at that. That's another of my favorite attractions that I, I wish was still in a Disney park. Between the story that told and how well it was put together and and just that animatronic version of Robin along with the with Nine Eyes. That was a great, yeah. great show. It was a great show, yeah. And speaking of great, great shows, if you are not listening to the Light the Fuse podcast, you're missing out on so much great Hollywood history. And you get not just stories about films that are made in like the past 10 years. The folks you have on the show, I mean, they go back two, three, sometimes four decades and they have such amazing stories. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been very lucky to talk to who we, we talked to. This week, we talked to Craig O'Brien, which is a really interesting chat. He was the aerial cinematographer for Fallout. So he actually went, jumped out of the plane. He actually walked backwards out of the plane with Tom oh, Cruise no. you know, countless times. So, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Very cool stories. Yeah. Okay. That's must listening, folks. But again, what's great about Light the Fuse is not just Mission Impossible, but you also get uh, great stories about the uh, you know the the uh, Top Gun franchise. Likewise, the John uh, the, the John Wick. Wick franchise. Yeah, yeah, and occasionally Color of Night, Jim, because we've talked to a lot of people who also worked on Color really? of Night. Really? Yes, <sighs> Jim. Clearly, you aren't listening because the amount of times we've talked about. Bruce Willis's manhood on the show is <laughs> shocking. We should probably be arrested, but instead we are allowed to continue this podcast. So. Okay. Well, we, we, you know, the interesting thing now to counter with Disney dish, we so rarely talk about Bruce Willis's manhood on that show. I it's mean, I, I think it's been weeks. What? Yeah. Well, I mean, it'll come up sooner or later. No pun intended. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. All right. <laughs> so I guess we 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 the Jim Hill Media side of things. We we've got a Disney dish with Lentesto. We've got uh, Marvelous Disney, the Marvel News podcast they do with Aaron Adams. I swear to God, I'm going to get a new Universal joint out the door if it kills me. In the meantime, uh, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts. And you could rate it and review not only uh, Light the Fuse, but also the podcast you're listening to right now, Fine Tuning. That would be incredibly helpful. Uh, what would also be helpful is, hey, you want to subscribe? Head on over to Bandcamp. I know we touched on this earlier in the show, but seriously, if you are not following Drew on social media, you are missing out on so much fun. So can, can you tell people where they can find you? Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt on mm. Twitter and Instagram. And I want to tell all of our California listeners, Jim, mm. to please vote about this stupid recall election. Mm. Vote no. This is this could be California's Brexit, Jim. Mm. If, you know, if I go screaming out of the state, we know what will happen. So I just want to put that out there. That's my little civic duty, Jim. Okay, so no, yes, there you I, go. I understand it, it. I'm just kind of surprised it got this far, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's making me very nervous, Jim. So I have to, you know. No, <laughs> I, I, I get that. I do. 
Also, uh, Nancy would like to remind you, by the way, social media-wise, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back soon.